Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to gather with you together on this Lord's Day as we uh, turn our attention to God's Word. I want to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 2. Uh, James chapter 2, we're going to be looking this morning at uh, verses uh, 14 through verse 26. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. But before uh, we dive in, I want to take a moment and pray and ask God's blessing on our time in His Word this morning. So, Uh, Would you pray with me, please? Lord, what a privilege it is to gather together on this Lord's Day with uh, our church family. Uh, Lord, to sing praises to you, to to fellowship with one another, to hear your word preached. Lord, I I pray that you would bless our time uh, together this morning. Lord, as we've just sung uh, songs... Uh, Some words like, well, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Lord, that is a, a lofty request. That we would submit ourselves to your good and perfect will, uh, whatever that might be. Lord, knowing that that can bring hardship, knowing that that can bring pain, knowing that that can bring difficulty. Uh, but Father, we rejoice in those sufferings because you are working in us a faith and making uh, that faith within us perfect. And so, Father, I pray that as we sing words like that this morning, that, that those would not just be words, that they would be our prayer, that we would actually surrender ourselves to You. Lord, surrendering our, surrender ourselves to You, knowing that it will cost us everything. So, Father, I pray now as we turn our attention to Your Word that You would bless us, that You would bless uh, this, this time Uh, as we uh, seek to understand, as we seek to obey. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to ask you a question this morning. What motivates you to obey God's Word? What motivates you to obey God's Word? take, Take a second and think about that. What motivates you to obey God? I think there are a lot of different reasons, a lot of different motivations that, uh, that men might obey God's Word. One uh, lesser reason right, is we think that if we, do, uh, if we do obey, if we do good deeds, if we do good works, that we somehow uh, earn merit with God. Right? And so we, we do our good deeds, we, uh, we do those good works, and we say things like, well, I'm going to earn an extra jewel in my crown in heaven one day for that one. We may say things like, you know, uh, my mansion in heaven just got another room expanded onto it because of this, this good deed. And so these, these hopes that we can earn brownie points before God serves as our motivation to obey. Some people obey God because they want other people to notice. They want other people to notice them. We see examples of this in the Bible, uh, right? It was uh, Pharisees go out in the street and they pray these great and these grand prayers so that men might look at them and say things like, man, look how spiritual that person is. How passionately they pray. They must really love the Lord. Right? They want people to say things like, man, he is a good person. Right? The problem with motivations like these and others that are like them is they don't actually come from a changed heart. Anybody can be motivated uh, by the praise of men. Anybody can be motivated by the hope of a 
reward. And, and uh, these, these motivations don't actually flow. Our obedience that in, in, in with these motivations don't actually flow from a, a changed or a different heart. Right? They're just people working hard in their own strength uh, to try to please themselves or to try to please other people around them. And the, the, the bad part about this is that the second, the second that obedience becomes hard or the second that obedience actually costs you something, it's no longer worth doing. You quit obeying. So what should motivate us? What should be our drive to live lives that are obedient to God's Word? Well, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this letter that we have been studying together to teach us what it means to live a joyful, humble, confident, steadfast, meek, obedient faith. What does it look like to have that kind of faith? This humble faith ought to be fueled by a love for God, that changes our hearts, then, then works out in a life of obedience, that works out in changed behavior. Right? This, this is the only motivation that will help us persevere when obedience gets tough, is to have a new heart. Well, our text this morning, in many ways, is the summit of James' letter uh, so far. This is, this is the center, man. This is, this is the core of his letter, these verses that we're going to look at this morning. And that's exactly what he's teaching us. That, that our faith, as it's played out in obedience, right, comes, it flows from a genuine faith and a changed heart. Right? So with those things in mind, if you're able, I want to invite you once more to stand with me as I read for us what God says to us from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. This is God's holy and inspired in an errant word for us this morning. James 2, 14-26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, uh, what faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You may be seated. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, James has introduced this argument of what it looks like to live this life that is changed by the gospel and results in a new heart that flows out of obedience. Here's how he introduces this argument. Remember in in chapter 1, verse 18, James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So it's by the will of God and by his word of truth that he brings us forth, that literally gives us birth, this new birth, so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so this is important that we start here because James is saying that our faith, that true, genuine, saving faith, comes from the will of God, wrought out by the word of God in our hearts. This true, genuine, saving faith then changes our hearts and we walk in obedience. I know that we know that we are to walk in obedience as a result of this faith because James goes on then to say that this word, right, this word uh, that, that he brought us forth by, this word of truth, is a word that we are to hear and to do. Not just to hear only and not to do, but actually to hear and to do. So what it looks like to receive this implanted word, which is able to save our souls, James says, is that we hear this word and we do it. If we hear the word and we don't do it, James says we're like a man who looks at himself intently in a mirror. He examines his face in a mirror and turns around and immediately forgets what he looks like. It's foolishness. And so James has introduced this argument that we are to live lives that are changed and shaped by the gospel that result then in lives of obedience to God's word. James is fleshing out this argument more and more here. And so that's what we're looking at. That's the that's the context of the argument that these verses are framed in. And in order for us to understand these verses, some of which are really hard. Some of which are really tough, and we're going to get to those things, but in order to understand them properly, we can't take them out of that context. So our passage this morning, as you guys know, I like to give you all a summary of what these verses are saying. Uh, Just in my own words, the main idea of our passage, a thesis statement, if you will. And this is the main idea. Genuine saving faith will produce works of obedience. Genuine saving faith will produce works of obedience. And by contrast by that, you can say faith that is not genuine, faith that is not saving, will result in a workless life. In lives that are not marked by obedience. I want to show you three different places in this passage. One at the top, one at the middle, and one at the bottom where James says this exact same thing. So, All of his argument, his entire argument can be summarized just by that sentence. Let's look at these three places. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, at the very beginning, James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now look at verse 20. We're going to look at verse 20 uh, a little bit in depth. He has a nice little word play in verse 20. He says, the second half of verse 20, 
Faith apart from works is useless. And then finally, the very last thing in verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. So this, it's like a drumbeat <laughs> that, that goes throughout this passage. Faith apart from works is dead. It's useless. It is not true, genuine saving faith. So genuine saving faith will produce within us, by its nature, works of obedience in our life. All right, point number one. Faith without works is not genuine faith. Faith without works is not genuine faith. Now, before we jump into James's argument here, it's going to help us to have a few definitions in our mind of what James is talking about. Because if we don't have these things clear in our minds before we go, we're going to start confusing what James's argument here is. So the first definition we need to know is what does James mean when he says the word faith? Faith. True faith. Genuine faith. The real deal. Not the phony faith. True faith is confident trust in Christ that leads to a changed life. Okay, True faith is confident trust in Christ that leads to a changed life. If that trust does not lead to a changed heart, it is not true faith. It's not genuine faith. And we're going to see how James develops this idea. The second definition we need to know is the word works. Greek word erga, the word works. What is this word works? Right? <clears throat> well, faithful works are actions done in obedience to God flowing from a new heart. Works are actions done in obedience to God that flow from a new heart. Okay, so biblical scholar Craig Blomberg says, in essence, Works are the sum total of a changed life that are brought about by faith. So our works, our good works, are a fruit. A fruit that shows the genuineness of our faith. Now with those things in mind, we can look at James's argument here. <clears throat> so James begins his argument by asking two questions. Two rhetorical questions. Look in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, right? Says he has faith, but does not have works. What good is that? What is the point of that? And that's the first question that, that James is asking. This is a person who claims to know God. This is a person that says he believes in the gospel and says that he has faith, but he is living a life that is totally unchanged by this confession. And that leads... James to ask a follow-up question. Can that faith, can that faith save him? Now the second question is actually pretty interesting and there's all kinds of translation issues that are really interesting as you look at it. Some of you guys are using the King James version of the Bible and your translation says there that second question, can faith save him? Now I think that's not the best translation. It's a little bit misleading because that word faith there in the Greek text has the article which for those of you most of you and including myself who are not Greek scholars what that means is James is talking about a specific faith he says can this faith this faith that that it's a confession of faith but it's a faith that does not have works can that kind of faith save him so that's the interesting uh, first translation issue. The second translation issue that's really interesting is that there's an untranslated word in the Greek text in this question. 
Okay? The very first word in Greek in that sentence, can faith save him, is the word may. And the word may in Greek means no or not. Okay? And there is not an English translation that translates that word into this question. But, but here's roughly what, what he's saying. No, that faith cannot save him. Can it? That's, that's essentially what he's answering his own rhetorical question. So James says, what good is it for a person to have a faith but does not have works? No, that faith, that kind of faith can't save him, can it? No. No, James says. That's not true, genuine, saving faith. So James illustrates this, this type of person. He gives us an example of the type of person who confesses that he has faith but does not follow up that faith with uh, works. That, that, that faith does not lead him to obedience. And he pulls from the passage that we studied last time uh, on caring for the poor, right? And not, not showing distinctions among us based off of outward appearance. James pulls an illustration. He says, okay, let's say you're in the assembly, you're, you're gathered together, and a brother or sister is among you is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. So what James is saying here is you have a brother or sister in Christ, a person who confesses this same faith that you claim to hold, and that person, that brother or sister in Christ, a part of your family of faith, lacks. He's, he's naked and he doesn't have food to eat. He lacks basic essentials. And you say to that person, go in peace. Be warm. Be feel, filled. And James follows up by asking the same question again. Look at what he says. He said, now what good is What's the purpose of that kind of confession? To see your family member in faith in a desperate condition, to recognize that condition is desperate, and then to use a biblical uh, greeting. Go in peace. Be warm and filled. Right? Go in peace. What good is that kind of faith? Well, James answers that question. The answer comes in verse 17. Look, at, look down at verse 17 again. What good is that? Well, faith, that kind of faith, by itself, does not have works, is dead. It's not living. It's not true. It's not genuine. Well, brothers and sisters, it is entirely possible to claim, to claim that you have faith and your heart be utterly unchanged by the gospel. That kind of faith in biblical terms is no faith at all. It does not fit the definition of faith. Because remember our definition of faith, right? Trust in Christ that leads to a changed life. That kind of faith in biblical terms is no faith at all. This empty and bogus confession is just words. And James says, that will not save you. To claim belief in Jesus and to have no life change is to be a sham. Craig Blomberg, that same uh, commentator, says, just as words without action profited this poor person nothing, so faith without works profits the believer, in quotations, nothing. Well, friends, if you're here this morning and there is no discernible life change as a result of your confession of faith, I urge you, to examine your heart. 
Examine your heart and test to see if your faith is really real. Is your faith genuine or is it just empty words? Here's the scary part. It is entirely possible for us to have big theological brains to believe all the right things and to have no hearts shaped by the gospel. It's possible for a person to do that, to have a big theological brain and a heart that is utterly dead. Okay, so what's the big deal, <laughs> right? If we believe the right things, isn't that enough? Isn't it at least a step in the right direction? Why do we have to go all fanatic and talk about obedience and changed hearts and all that kind of stuff? Right? I mean, if that's the way you want to live your life, you know, that's cool. That's cool. But me and God, we're all good. Well, that brings us to point two. Point two in your text. Genuine faith and works are inseparable. Genuine faith, remember remember our definition of genuine faith, and works, remember our definition of works, they're inseparable. You can't separate the two. So James makes a shift in his argument and he introduces this objector. And this objector has the, the same objection that I just mentioned here uh, uh, just a second ago, right? He says, okay, you know, <clears throat> here you go, James. You, you have faith, right, Mr. Objector? You have faith, and I, James, have works. That's his objection. Essentially, his objection is, right, okay, you have the gift. I've got the gift of faith. I believe the right things, and, and I, James, have the gift of works. Those are they're two separate things, Right? Uh, you have faith and I have works. In other words, this person says faith and works, they're separate gifts, like spiritual gifts, right? So like you, Pastor Nick, have the gift, uh, the spiritual gift of teaching, at least in some capacity, I hope, or I wouldn't be standing here right now, right? And maybe you out there, maybe you don't have the gift of teaching, but you've got the gift of encouragement, right? So Pastor Nick, why don't you stick to the teaching and I'll stick to the encouragement and we'll just fill in each other's weaknesses and we'll all be good. Well, James says it doesn't work like that. You can't separate the two like we separate the spiritual gifts and rightly so, right? We're all gifted in different ways and the Holy Spirit uses us in different ways. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right? He, he, he says that we're gifted for the building up of the body of Christ and the ear can't say to the eye, man, I wish I was an eye. Right? That, then we wouldn't have an ear and we wouldn't have an eye. But faith and works is not like that, James is saying. And here's what he does. This is interesting. And this question he asks, this next thing that he says is really important to be able to understand the rest of the passage. He says, you have faith and I have works. And here's what James' response to this objector is. Show me your faith. Oh, you gifted one of faith but not of works? Prove it to me. Show me your faith is real. Right? Prove it to me. Prove it to everybody else around here. Prove it to me that you can do it. This answer is not so, uh, it's not so uh, far from us that we can't understand it. Right? So all of you ladies have been sitting with your husbands and watching a basketball game or a football game or something like that before. And you see this amazing play. You're, this ama and you think, Holy smokes, that an athlete, somebody's gifted enough of an athlete to be able to do that, and your husband's utterly unimpressed. Right? And you're like, did you not just see what happened? 
And your husband says, I could do that. Right? And what does the wife do? She reaches down and grabs a basketball, tosses it to him while he's kicked back in his lazy boy, and he says, all right, hot shot, prove it. Right? This is what James is, it's kind of what James is saying. He's like, okay, you of great faith, prove it to me apart from your works. And I will prove it to you by my works. I'll prove to you that my faith is genuine by my works. Once heard a story, it's not a true story, it's a story a pastor made up because it fit really well in a sermon, <clears throat> you know. So I'm going to use it. Once heard a story about a stunt devil who stretched a wire across the Grand Canyon. And, and a huge crowd gathered as this man walked across to the other side and turned around and walked back. Crowd cheered, stood and clapped in amazement. The man then took a wheelbarrow and put the wheelbarrow on the line and walked to the other side of the Grand Canyon and turned around and walked back. And that impressed the crowd even more uh, that this man was, had such a skill. And the, and the man said, that's nothing. And he reached down and he grabbed a big bowling ball and he threw the bowling ball in the wheelbarrow. And he took the wheelbarrow and he walked across the line and the bowling ball's rolling all around and throwing off balance, but he's unfazed. Walks that line just as straight, just as balanced as he could and he turns around and walks back. The crowd erupts in applause and, and just uh, amazement at this man's skill. The man then turns to the crowd and asks the question, who thinks I can put a person in this wheelbarrow and do the same thing? The crowd cheers, of course, of course you can. You've just done it three times. Of course, you've shown it. Of course. And then the, the, the man says, who wants to be my first volunteer? And the crowd falls silent. Does that crowd really believe that he could do it? Not enough to risk their necks, right? Not enough to risk their necks. <clears throat> Similar to what this hypothetical man is saying, James is saying, prove to me that your faith is real. Put some skin on it. Show me your faith apart from your works. And the point is, you can't. Well, I believe all the right things. I believe that, that God is one. I believe uh, in the Bible I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the deity of Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Look at what James says to that response in verse 19. You believe that God is one. Great. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. James shuts down this argument. Friends, there is no such thing as a heretical demon. Did you know that? Demons have good theology. You read through the Gospels and you see examples of that all over the place. They believe in the holiness of God. They believe in the Trinity. They even believe in the deity of Jesus. And they shudder. They're terrified. So the demons go one better than man. They one-up the man. They go better than this religious phony that James is addressing. They shudder. They shake in grave fear. The Apostle Paul addresses a similar type of thing in Romans 3, verse 18, when he said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the type of man may confess the right things, may say he believes the right things, but there is no fear of God in his eyes. So James says, you believe in God, do you? You believe all the right theology, huh? Good for you. 
The demons one-up you. They believe and they shake. At least they have some kind of response to these things. And brothers and sisters, a, a faith that is merely intellectual is a dead faith. That's just easy believism. That's all it is. It's easy believism. So what does genuine faith that produces the heart of obedience look like? What does this look like? Can you give me an example? That's what James does next, and that brings us to our final point this morning. Genuine faith is brought to maturity by works of obedience. Genuine faith is brought to maturity by works of obedience. What I mean by this is that genuine faith is shown to be genuine faith, and it's strengthened in its faith by our obedience to God's command, even when that obedience costs everything. Especially when that obedience costs us everything. Before we get into these last two illustrations, I want to address uh, an obvious issue that um, many of you who carefully read this text and who have been carefully listening to our sermon series in Galatians, uh, an issue that many of you may be thinking. Right, So there are people who look and say, well, James here, right? James is arguing something that contradicts what Paul teaches in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, and in other places, right? But, but I don't think that's the case. Pastor John MacArthur said this, and this is interesting. I'll explain what, how this looks. He says, a lot of people look at the Apostle Paul and, and this idea of justification by faith alone and James, who's talking about uh, justification by works and not by faith alone, and they look at them like they're, or they treat Paul and James like they're facing each other in an argument, in a fight. When in all actuality, they're standing back to back, fighting together against different ends of the spectrum. <laughs> like the Apostle Paul is making his claims that were justified by faith alone, apart from works, to a group of people who are trusting in the works of their flesh to justify them before God. Where James is looking at a group of people who said, as long as I believe the right things, I'm cool. Right? I can, I can sign a card. I can walk an aisle. I can join a church. And I'm good. Got my fire insurance. Right? He's writing to those kinds of people. So they're actually standing back to back, fighting opposite sides of uh, the argument. But they, here's how they do this. They use words differently. Okay? So I want to I show you what I mean by this. All right? So, James is using a word here a little bit differently than Paul does. So, James writes in verse 24. Look at at verse 24. He says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Right? Hang on. This is out of step with what Paul says in Galatians 2.16 where he says, we know that a person is not justified by works, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul can't make it any clearer to say that we're not justified by our works or even faith and works. We're only justified by faith. In Romans chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 1 through verse, around about verse 6, he makes this argument. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham according to our, for, or our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, 
but not before God. That phrase, but not before God, is really important to understand what Paul means when he says the word justified. When Paul says in Galatians 2 and Romans 4 and many other places in his writings that we are justified by faith alone, he is talking about our being declared righteous before God. He's using it as a legal term uh, to say that we are declared to be right before God. This is, uh, this is in the eyes of God our faith is given to us. We are justified by faith uh, alone uh, according to God in our stance with God. So in light of what Paul says in these verses, how can James say that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Well, the key is to understanding what James means by the word justified. You remember, uh, remember back up in verse uh, 18 when I said James' response to this, uh, this dissenter is really important to understanding the rest? This is where this comes into play. Because this person says, right, you have faith and I have works. And James' response to that person is, prove it to me. Prove it to me, right? Show me your faith. Prove it to me. This word justified can also be used to say, to give proof about something, right? Now, it shouldn't surprise us that these biblical authors are using these words differently, right? So let me give you an example of how this happens in other places with different words. Paul uses the word called, to mean someone who is saved. Someone who is called is someone who is saved. There is no one who is called, according to Paul, that is not saved. So much so that he uses these terms interchangeably. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he doesn't say to the Corinthians, consider your salvation, brothers. He says to them, consider your calling. Now, if we think that that's the only way that the biblical authors can use that word, that calling equals salvation, we're going to have a really hard time when we get to Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Paul says, I mean, uh, Matthew says, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, wait a second. They're using the word called differently there. They're using it two different ways. So it doesn't surprise us that they can use this word justified in a whole different range of meanings. Paul uses justified to refer to God's declaration of righteousness for us. So for Paul to say that we are justified by faith means that God declares us righteous on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ and not on the basis of our good works. He's talking about works that come before salvation. Right? Works that come before faith. James here uses this word justified to mean something like proven to be true. Now, if you understand that James uses justified in this way, then his argument makes perfect sense and there's no contradiction with the Apostle Paul. Right? <clears throat> there's, there's no contradiction whatsoever. So, he, he says to them, show it to me. Justify yourself in my eyes. Prove to me that your faith is genuine and real apart from your works. And he says, you can't do it. You can't do it. Let's look down at verse 20. He says, 
Do you want to be shown? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, you empty man, that faith apart from works is useless? So he's saying, you want, you want, me, to, you want me to give you some examples of what true and genuine faith looks like? Now, there's an interesting play on words here in the Greek text in that, that, that second phrase there in verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. So he said twice in this passage, faith apart from works is dead, but here he says faith apart from works is useless. Now, there's a little bit of a rhyme that's taking place in the original language that doesn't translate over into English. So the Greek word for works is erga, E-R-G-A, erga is the Greek word for works. The Greek word for useless is arga, A-R-G-E, arga. They rhyme, erga, arga. So he's made up a little poem here to drive home his point. And literally, he says here, a faith without works does not work. A faith without works does not work. And he gives us two illustrations of how this is true. The first is about Abraham. He says, was not Abraham our, uh, Abraham our father justified uh, by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed, was shown to be true, was matured by his works. It was proven by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called by men a friend of God. So his faith was genuine. His faith was put on display, and it was proven to be true by his sacrificing of his, his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. And men looked at that and said, there is a man with genuine faith. He is a friend of God. It's a faith that's proven to be true. So remember when God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, a multitude of nations. And he looked out onto uh, in the sky and he, he saw the stars and he looked out onto the shore and saw the grains of sand. And God said, so will your offspring be. As many as the stars in the sky, as many as the grains of sand on the beach. And do you remember what Abraham's response was? The Scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul would say he was justified before God. He was counted as righteous. Now, you remember what happened next. Genesis chapter 22. His son Isaac is born. uh, Born when... Abraham was like 100 years old. Sarah was like 90 years old. And and God told Abraham, now go take this son of the promise, take him up on the hill, build me an altar, and sacrifice your son on that altar to me. And how did Abraham respond? Did he say, no way. (laughs) You're crazy. (laughs) Why would I do that? No, he took his son and he made the journey and he prepared himself to offer up his son as a sacrifice. Now, why would he do that? Why would Abraham do such a thing? Well, we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested to see if his faith was true and genuine, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises 
in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This is what he says about Abraham. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did. Right? Do you see why Abraham did this? He did it because he believed God's promises to be so true that God promised to provide this offspring through Isaac and, I, and he believed this promise. And he, would, he believed it so strongly. He had such faith in the promises of God and in the faithfulness of God to keep this promise. He was even willing to kill his son because he was so certain that God was going to keep that promise that if he killed his son, God would raise him back up from the dead again in order to fulfill his promise. We know how the story goes. God stops Abraham from doing this. And interestingly enough, the very thing that God asks Abraham to do, but then stops him short of doing, a couple of thousand years later, God does that very thing. Except this time, he doesn't stop it. He offers up his only son on the cross as a sacrifice for sins for you and for me so that by faith we might have changed hearts that lead us to obey God's good promise. James gives a final example from Rahab. It says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Again, was her faith not proven to be true by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, you remember this story from Joshua chapter 2. God had led His people out of Egypt. He had uh, wiped out Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea and He had led them through the wilderness and now He is taking them to the promised land and they're right across the, uh, from the, the promised land and God is ready to give this land into their hands and Joshua sends two spies into the city. And those two spies find their way to a prostitute's house we know as Rahab. And Rahab tells these men that, that the men of the city have heard the mighty acts of God, how they delivered Israel, how they delivered God's people out of Pharaoh's hand and they are terrified and Rahab says in Joshua 2 chapter 9 I know that the Lord has given you this land that land that God had promised Abraham that he would give his offspring Rahab said that same promise that God made to Abraham that Abraham believed I believe that promise is true this is a confession of faith by this Gentile prostitute how do we know that this confession was genuine? Because she protected the spies. She hit them on the roof. She sent them out another way, and she even lied. <laughs> she even lied uh, to the guards to make sure that they wouldn't be caught. How do we know she had genuine faith? It was revealed by her works. It was proven to be true by her works. It is the faith that leads to those kinds of works that has real, true, genuine saving faith this faith these works this this act of obedience that would have cost both of these people everything would have cost them everything isaac was the son of promise the only son of promise that abraham had and he was willing to obey even though it was going to cost him the whole thing rahab right <clears throat> could have been 
uh, counted as a traitor and put to death. It could have cost her everything. Yet she still obeyed because of her genuine saving faith. And James concludes by saying, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. John Calvin, a theologian once wrote, faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. It's always accompanied by obedience. So brothers and sisters, I want to ask you again, why do you obey? What's your motivation for obeying God? I hope that your answer is that you obey God because you love Him. Because you believe His promises are true. That you believe that His promises are real. Because you believe in His faithfulness. And that deep faith is real and genuine and that causes you to obey. If you're here this morning and this is not the kind of faith that you have, maybe you're here this morning and you agree with everything that I've said, but you still have no changed heart. I urge you this morning, repent and put your trust in Jesus and be saved. Don't merely mentally ascend to these things. Don't agree with everything I have to say, but have no unchanged heart. Let these truths sink in and change your heart so that you might walk in obedience to Him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is good. It brings life. It reveals sin. It reveals shortcomings. And Father, I pray that your word will do its work in our hearts this morning. Lord, expose to us areas where our faith is weak. Expose to us areas in which we need to repent. And Father, help us to have true, genuine, saving faith and walk in obedience to you. These things I pray in your name. Amen.